Well, friends, we turn now to a high point in our time together, that the reading of God's word and, the, and having it explained to us. We're not going to read Matthew chapter 5, although that would be a great thing to do. But rather, in a moment, Stu Holman is going to start our sermon series in 1 Thessalonians. And this was a letter from the Apostle Paul in the first century to a real church where he writes about a real faith in a real resurrected Saviour, the Lord Jesus. And we find in Acts chapter 17 the backstory context, the historical context of this letter. And so our first Bible reading is in Acts chapter 17 beginning at verse 1. So I invite you to uh, scroll or turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 17, beginning at the first verse. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. And Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees saying, there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. They made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Well, let's turn now to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1 where we find the beginning of Paul's letter to this church that he planted. From Paul, Silas and Timothy. To the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labour prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message ran out, rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. 
Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it. For they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the true and living God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Lovely to be with you this morning, St. Andrews. As we come to God's word, I'm going to pray for us and ask that God would be the one who speaks. So let's join together in a prayer. Our great God, thank you that your word is living, it's active, sharper than any sword. And we pray that now as we ponder your word together, that your spirit might bring your word to each one of us afresh and that he would show us how to live it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, throughout 2021, our sermon series have broadly led us to reflect on the idea of church. And uh, under God, we've been thinking about who we are as God's people and and what kind of life together flows from this. Uh, The letter of 1 Peter framed our identity as exiles uh, whose lives are profoundly shaped by hope. Uh, We've been called and given a new birth into a living hope. Prior to that, we talked more broadly about membership in the Lord Jesus and then our membership with one another of St. Andrews. And so uh, continuing our exploration of our life together as church, today we begin a new series on the book of 1 Thessalonians. Why? Because the Thessalonians are a brilliant model, an excellent example of a local church. So when churches ask, what does good look like? The Thessalonians have so much to show us. Now, through the week, I spoke with quite a few of us about our plans for St. Andrews property redevelopment. And one of the really important things that we want to talk about first, before we start designing kitchens and kids' ministry storage cupboards and the amazing outdoor barbecue area, first of all, we want to agree on the kind of church that we want to be. We already know that we want to be growing disciples of Jesus Christ, and now we want to dig deeper into that. What does good look like when St. Andrews Roseville starts growing disciples? What's important in that? What's it going to look like? Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians is going to help us. It shows us what good looks like. So uh, that's why, as we just heard in verses 7 and 8 in our passage today, Paul says something like, all over the promises, uh, sorry, all over the provinces, both of Macedonia and Achaia, in other words, all over the Greek mainland, believers look up to you guys. Everyone knows your lives are echoing the gospel. And, And actually, not just in the provinces, but all over the place. The news of your faith in God is so well known, we hardly have to say anything to anyone anymore. That's a pretty rough paraphrase, but we get the idea the Thessalonian example is first rate. And so as we read through Paul's letter to the Thessalonians over the next few weeks, I want to encourage us to really dig in, to look, look under the bonnet, and let's discover together what makes this church tick. Why does Paul have such a warm relationship with these guys, even when their circumstances were so terrible? Things had been pretty tough in Thessaloniki, but God did something wonderful there with, with a huge impact, with a, actually with a kind of impact I would love to see in Sydney and beyond. So how did it all happen? Well, we just read uh, the story a few moments ago in Acts 17. Paul and Silas, they'd been run out of town in Philippi, 
And so just further on down the Via Ignatia, which is the Roman highway joining Rome to the east, Paul and Silas arrive in Thessaloniki. They go up to the synagogue and over three Sabbaths, they reasoned from the scriptures and they explained and they proved that the Messiah had to suffer and to rise from the dead. And, and speaking to a Jewish audience who knew their Bible so very well, that was the first step. Step two, they declared that Jesus is this Messiah who suffered and who rose from the dead. That's the essential gospel. It's all about Jesus, who he is and what he's done. And as some of the Thessalonians put their trust in this truth, God wonderfully brought them to new life, forgiven, free, and forever with God as his children. But that radical change brought conflict with it, right? The, the remaining Jews stirred up trouble. They, they beat up the guy who'd, who'd offered Paul and Silas hospitality, and, and ultimately they had Paul and Silas run out of town. So how long were they even in Thessaloniki? Maybe as short as five or six weeks, maybe a little longer. Persecution of some kind continued for the Christians there, and Paul longed to see them, to return back, but he wasn't able to. So sometime later, he, he's decided, I will send Timothy to see how the Thessalonian Christians were going and to encourage them. And when Timothy returned to Paul with his report, what we are reading is this letter that Paul wrote back the church at Thessaloniki. When did it all happen? Well, the scholars tell us somewhere around about the year 50 to 51 AD. So what we have here is one of the earliest parts of the New Testament scriptures, still within the time period covered by the book of Acts. As we read the whole letter, we see Paul's letter is very personal. It's very warm. Uh, the first part is characterized by Paul re-establishing his relationship with the Thessalonians, maybe in response to some local assaults on his character aimed at actually undermining the gospel. And then in the final two chapters, Paul pivots to some direct teaching, like likely, I think, in response to whatever Timothy has brought back in his report. It's kind of a short letter, but as I said, the great blessing for us in understanding uh, what made the church at Thessaloniki is such a great church. That's where the value is for us. Why was their reputation so great? So let's start. Let's dig a little deeper now and let's look at the letter itself. Hopefully you've, you've got a Bible open in front of you so you can follow along. But the, uh, the letter begins like this. Paul, Silas and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. It's typical of a first century letter. The authors, Paul and Silas, introduced themselves first. Remember, Silas was with Paul when they first went to Thessaloniki with Paul. And then also Timothy, right? This is the other associate who just returned from visiting the Thessalonians. So the three are writing this letter. Who are they writing to? Well, it's the whole church at Thessaloniki. They're greeted with the grace and the peace of God. And next, as Paul so often does, he tells the recipients of his letter of his prayers for them. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you 
because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. It's actually all one great big long sentence. The details, though, tell us so much about the Thessalonians. What does Paul actually thank God for? Well, there's four key things that seem to be part of being a good church. The Thessalonians work, their labor, uh, their endurance, and that they are chosen by God, evidenced by the way the gospel message has come to them. And this evidence of the work of God unmistakably and obviously is the key theme of the opening couple of chapters of the book. The Thessalonian Christians could tell their story, but their lives speak so much louder. If the Thessalonians had a sign out the front of their gathering place, it probably would have said, you know, beware, God at work. Their work, their labor, their endurance and their chosenness told the story. And we're going to come back to these in a few minutes. I think very importantly, the thing to notice here is that kind of behind, underneath, over the top and straight on through everything that is going on in Thessaloniki was the work of God, which had a massive impact. The lives of the Thessalonians were dramatically changed. There's a, that's the sign of a good church, changed lives. And so Paul continues on talking about that change in verse 5. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. So lives are changed as the Thessalonians rubbed shoulders with Paul and Silas as they got to know how a Christian lived. In the midst of all of the persecution, there was joy. Joy. Supernaturally gifted joy given by the Holy Spirit. Again, this is the evidence that it's God who is at work, which is the very reason for their reputation throughout. So we continue. Uh, so you Thessalonians became a model to all of the believers in Macedonia and Achaia, as we said earlier, those are the prophets. They're everywhere in the Greek mainland. They all knew of it. Okay, So the Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we don't need to say anything about it. For they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and await for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Once again, there is more evidence of the work of God. The Thessalonians abandoned their worship of idols to serve the living God. Now, in Greco-Roman thinking, walking away from your obligations to the gods of Thessaloniki was a recipe for, for wrath and for payback. But the Thessalonians gladly did so, knowing that the true and living God was actually in control of all things. Indeed, they turned away from idolatry to wait for the return of the Lord Jesus from heaven and the resurrection of the dead. Two important themes which Paul's going to pick up later on in this letter. So all of this happens only because God is at work. 
Paul reminds the Thessalonians of this time and time again throughout the letter. Your lives are changed, not by fancy words or, or by the tricks of a traveling orator philosopher, but by the Spirit of God. Against all odds, against all likelihood or rational expectation, the Thessalonians listened to the gospel of Jesus. They believed it and they were absolutely transformed. They were given eternal life. And so, learning from the Thessalonians, we would do well to take note of the work of God among us as well. We too are a supernatural community. We are only who we are because of the work of God. He is the true and living one at our center. Yes, he's unseen, but the evidence is everywhere. And so, we need to pay attention. And I say this because it's kind of hard for us, this paying attention to God. It's almost foreign to us. We, we tend to look at material things that we can touch and observe and count. We tend to imagine that there is a direct correlation between Christian growth and our clever programs and our brilliant resources and our technical skills and all of the other inputs to the Christian factory. But here's the thing with the, kingdom of, with the kingdom of God. Human input is not necessarily proportional to spiritual outcomes. Effort in does not directly produce spiritual outputs. Although I think maybe prayer in could be an exception to that. So to the extent that we think that there's a formula for Christian growth, that reveals the extent to which we're going to struggle to recognize the work of God. You see, the work of God is, by nature, spiritual. It's hidden at times. Sometimes it's unexpected, but it is always good. It's like a mustard seed, apparently small and insignificant at first, but then shown to be huge and life-changing and transformational. The work of God will lead us to become more like Jesus Christ in character. The work of God will always bring glory to the Lord Jesus Christ, even in unexpected places, in unexpected ways. A new property development won't cause this. Although it might support the impact, it might make it easier for us to cater for that growth. But before any of that, of first importance, is that God be at work among us. And so if we want to see the work of God in our lives personally and in our church collectively, the place to start is on our knees. To encourage and inspire us then, let's go back and look a little more at the work of God among the Thessalonians. Back in verses 2 through 5, we notice that Paul rejoiced over the Thessalonians, over their work, their labor, and their endurance. And those outward signs demonstrated the work of God, but they came from things unseen. First, we saw that their work was produced by faith. Now, what kind of work does faith produce? Well, because we believe that Jesus is Lord, he is the first priority in our lives. We act on the basis that God's promises never fail. We give ourselves to obeying his commands, even if the people around us mock us for that. 
before looking after our own comfort, our own wants and ambitions, we give ourselves to living as his disciple. The belief that Jesus is Lord will completely reorder our priorities in this way. The second part of God's obvious work in the lives of the Thessalonians was that their labor was produced by love. Now, the word labor there in verse 3 is slightly different to the very active and kind of positive word for work in the previous phrase. The labor here has that sense of hard, toilsome work. It's that long slug of repetitive effort, even involving a kind of suffering. Love drives this kind of labor. The Thessalonians' love is genuine, such that when things get tough, their love leads them to hang in there and keep on going. If you're walking alongside someone with a chronic illness, if someone you love has been struggling with their mental health, if you've been trying to help someone for a very long time, but they just don't seem to want to help themselves, that Thessalonian kind of love is what you need. But here's the thing. This love is actually the hidden work of God. Only God can produce this kind of love in us such that we would give ourselves to this labor of love. So when our spiritual and our emotional well is running dry, we go to God for refreshment so that we can keep on loving others through the tough bits. The third and obvious work of God, driven by hidden qualities, is the Thessalonians' endurance produced by hope. The Thessalonians were able to endure through injustice, through public shaming and ridicule, because they knew that Jesus Christ will return and will bring with him perfect justice and righteousness. Just for a few moments, let's put our current experience of lockdown under the lights of our Christian hope. See what happens. Lockdown is challenging to us for multiple reasons, right? Some of us are isolated and lonely. Human contact is a precious thing, and, and many of us miss this keenly. For others, there's a sense that life is passing me by. Here I am in the prime of life, but I'm missing out on all the best bits. My final year of school, my university experiences, my friends, my social world, it's all just taken from me. And holidays and new experiences are replaced by same old, same old. For some, a lockdown means our career is on pause. Or worse, our job security is gone and our finances are just wasting away. And the result of all of this accumulated stress for many of us is that we just feel blah. All of our get up and go is got up and left. And this is in lockdown light for Roseville. We're not looking beyond ourselves too much. So our question is, how might a Christian hope enable us to endure all of this or maybe much worse? Notice that I said a Christian hope. Because any other kind of hopeful optimism is not going to do it in the same way. Knowing that Jesus Christ is Lord right now means that we know there is some kind of purpose to what is happening. God is achieving his plans. Who knows 
exactly what that could mean. But he's up to doing something for his greater glory. Knowing that Jesus Christ is Lord also means that we know he is returning to rule a renewed creation without end. And that changes everything. Time on this earth is short. It goes by so quickly. In Sydney, we've been locked down for months, months and months. It seems like a long time. Shall we compare those months to a year or even a 10-year period of life or then to 100 years? And yet after a 1,000 years, our life in the new creation will have just begun, as the song says. And we're not even comparing days of equal joy or equal value. The days to come are qualitatively better because they are the days when evil is abolished, when there is no more pain or illness, crying, loneliness or suffering. They are better and they are more valuable, greater and worth more than these ordinary days. They are the days when we will enjoy uninterrupted fellowship and friendship with the Lord Jesus and with one another, then our work will be meaningful and valuable. Without struggle or opposition, in that day, justice will reign. Righteousness will triumph. The days to come are so good, they will obliterate these days of struggle. Our hope is founded on these promises found in the Bible because our future is so much better than the present. We'll get through this. Because there is so much more goodness to come. This is the endurance produced by hope. The Christians of Thessaloniki were such a great church because God was at work among them. Bringing endurance out of hope, bringing labor out of love and work driven by faith. God at work among them in that way was a sure sign that they were chosen by God and loved by him. The Thessalonians, for their part, knew that they were loved by God because Jesus Christ came for them also. He suffered and died for them and rose again for them and he's seated and is ruling in the heavenly places for them now, awaiting his return. And all these same things are true of us. May we be a church that is formed by this same gospel with the same kind of life for the glory of God. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we ask that your Holy Spirit might take this truth and reform our lives by it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Stu. We've had uh, quite a few people send in some questions while you were preaching. Uh, Let let me see if I can... um, Pick out some highlights for us. A couple of questions on on uh, one theme. Uh, you were clear with us that church isn't a building, but rather it, it's people gathered together. Um, in lockdown, when Auntie Gladys won't allow us to gather, how can we better be church? How can we do church in lockdown? Yeah. Church is fundamentally relational. Fundamentally relational. And so... We need to do whatever we can do within our regulations that is relational. Uh, Zoom meetings are a poor substitute for real meetings and with real people. But it's what we have, and it actually is a way that we can foster relationship. Where there are other ways where we can build relationship, I think we should take 
those advantage, we'll take advantage of those to the best way that we can. Interestingly, Paul has this profound sense of fellowship and friendship with the Thessalonians, and he is removed from them. So it seems to me that church is an entity that is not constrained by our physical togetherness, even though it's nicer that way. We, we know that. So be encouraged, questioner, whoever they be. We are being church together, even though we are far apart. We are still one in Christ. And uh, I take it that we should do whatever we can to foster our greater relationships. Yeah, I, I guess on that, Stu, for us, I, I don't believe the Apostle Paul had Zoom or social media to really? connect with. How did he do it? <sighs> magic. <laughs> no, not, not magic. Uh, uh, next question is in, in two parts. Uh, Stu, verses 9 and 10 seem to set out a three-step plan for the Christian life. Uh, the Thessalonian Christians turned from idols to serve the true and living God and thirdly to wait for the coming of Jesus. How does this more passive waiting, how does it inform the more active turning and serving? Yeah. This is that moment where you think, wow, I wish I'd put that in the sermon and we had an extra hour for the sermon. Um, so, yeah, there does seem to be this this sort of three-step plan, turn, serve, and wait. Um, Our questioner seems to assume that waiting is a passive thing, that we just kind of put our feet up on the couch and scroll some Insta while we just wait, right? That's not what waiting is at all in a biblical sense. I see waiting as a very, very active thing. Um, When the Lord Jesus tells the disciples to wait in prayer, which he does um, while they're in the garden, right? That doesn't mean going to sleep. That means... Which is what they did. Which is what they did. They didn't quite know this part yet. They were working on it. Um, So uh, I believe that waiting involves an active prayer life. I believe that waiting involves being alert and aware of everything going on around us. And I don't think it precludes us from doing stuff in the waiting. So um, I see waiting as a kind of like a spiritual discipline, a strength that we could grow in, in this prayerful alertness to everything around us, where we are actually inspired to take action, because we're waiting for the return of the Lord Jesus. So you want to get busy in that waiting piece. Second part, uh, perhaps comes... Wow, that was the first part. That was the first part. This this perhaps comes of what you've just said from a, a slightly different angle. If we can't see it, how can we measure spiritual growth? I think the answer that 1 Thessalonians gives us is in changed lives. Um, That was what Paul knew. That was what the whole Greek mainland knew. That that lives were changed. So uh, I think that there may be other sort of short-term and dynamic things that you could look at and go, wow, that was clearly the work of God, and that's wonderful when that happens. But I think if you want to measure Christian growth, look at the long-term change in somebody's life the more that person looks like the Lord Jesus, the more you know God is at work. Very good. One last question. Uh, again, from verse 10, any tips on how we can speak to our friends about the coming wrath of God? <laughs> Haven't there been so many bad examples of how, how that could look? Can you give us a good example? Yeah. Um, start off on your knees in prayer a lot and Pray for that person that God would be the one who would actually powerfully speak to them about um, the, the, well, through the conversation that you're going to have with them. Um, 
I, I would actually be conducting that conversation as a series of questions. I would be asking, what do you think you'd like to do next? And what next? What do you think will happen next? And invite the person to explore the future because not many people have carefully and sort of in a conversation explored the future. Um, if they don't, um, you know, then say, well, and you explore that to, well, then I'll die. And then you say, good, well, what do you think will happen next? And therefore, you've got an opportunity to hear what they think, first of all, of what they think will happen next after they die. Um, if you've been a gracious listener, you might then be able to say, would you like to, think, would you like to hear what I think? And this is how I know what I think. So mm -hmm. I, I tend to ask a whole bunch of questions and listen graciously and see what opportunities arise. Really helpful. Th thank you, Stu.